All right. Thanks, Taylor. Appreciate it. Hey, good to see you guys here this morning. This is like the, the remnant, the few, the proud, the true Coloradans who got out in the snow. You know, so much for like an inch, right? Weather people are never right about that stuff. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're near to New Denver, why don't, you, why don't you come out today? But if you're, if you're visiting with us, or maybe you just haven't been here in a while, we've been in this series, it's called Generation to Generation. And over the last five weeks, Norton and I have been, um, have been going through this process of trying to help uh, create some understanding and some empathy within our church, uh, but also uh, for people that are outside of our church around this topic of generations. And, and what we've said through this series is that all of us go through life in the same way. We go through these stages. We go through adolescence, and then we enter into young adulthood, hit middle age at some point, and then we, we descend into later adulthood and life changes. But the context for that is very different based on when you were born and what the generation that you were born that was part of. And so we've, we've tried to look at what are the differences uh, that, that exist and how can we create some understanding and some empathy. And then the last two weeks, Norton has really challenged us about the things that we need to stop doing, the things that we need to stop doing, things like blaming one another, uh, dismissing, lecturing, judging, and misseeing one another. Because in the, in the polarized society that we're living in today, these differences has, have created even more separation between us. I mean, on top of all the political infighting, man, last week was horrible, wasn't it? Uh, it's only going to get worse. So, the, I mean, where, where we are today, uh, th- these, these divisions and these, these, these areas that we find disagreement about are just increasing. And so age is one of those things. And so we, we've got to stop doing these things, stop blaming, stop dismissing, stop lecturing one another, stop judging, and then stop misseeing one another. And then we also need to start doing some things as well. Last week, Norton talked about this, you know, we need to start connecting with each other, really listening to what each generation has to say and the wisdom that comes. It's not just older people speaking into younger people's lives, but younger people talking about what today is like and the realities so that older people can learn um, and then learning in that process from one another. Well, today I want to share a, a unique perspective that we haven't talked directly about, but I think it lends uh, some weight Um, And I think it lends some urgency to this conversation about generations. And it's a topic that's uh, also intertwined a little bit with the story of New Denver Church. So in June of 2008, as Norton and Jason and I were living in Atlanta and starting to make plans for moving to Denver uh, to create this new church called uh, New Denver Church, the Pew Forum on uh, on Religious uh, Practice in America did this study. So the Pew Forum is a it's a nonpartisan think tank that does studies of, of American behavior, demographics. They study about what, what's going on in American life. And they have a whole division focused just on uh, religious life of Americans. And they did this, it was a groundbreaking new study. They, they, they surveyed over 35,000 Americans. And they produced this report, and it came out in June of 2008, called the, the, the American Religious Landscape Study. <clears throat> and what they, uh, what they did is they asked people questions about their beliefs, and about their identification, how they identified what, what religion they, they felt like they were part of, and then how they practiced that. Again, their goal is just to try to learn. And, and it painted this unprecedented picture. It gave us an insight into the way that Americans think about their religious life that we hadn't had before. And one of the things that, that Pew asked, a very simple question is, is uh, what religious tradition do you identify with? What would you say that you are? And this is a question that had been asked for by religious pollsters for a long time. You couldn't ask it on the, on the census since like the 1950s. They cut, they cut the question off there. 
but, but people who would call during election years would ask this question. So we had some historical data, and Pew was looking deeper into this question about how people identified and how they practiced. And what they found was, was really interesting, um, that uh, the American religious landscape was changing and changing pretty significantly. So from the polling data that we had all the way back in the 1940s, you can see that the percentage of people who, when asked, how do you identify? Like, what religious tradition do you, do you identify with? Over 90% of them said that they were Christians. And now that includes Catholics, that includes the Orthodox Church, all different forms of Protestantism, uh, Baptists, Methodists, uh, Presbyterians, whatever. And that actually spiked to a high watermark in the 1950s. Religious identification as Christians was higher in America than it's ever been. Oh, nearly 93% of people in America, if you ask them, would tell you they were some form of Christian. And then the world slowly began to change. Um, the numbers began to slide down. And what, what you can see is we're still north of 85% here, but through the 60s, through the 70s, through the 80s, and then into the 90s. But in the 90s, we're still up over 80%. And then Pew does this study in 2007, and something they, they discover something interesting. In just 10 years, a 5% drop takes place. And only 78%, so the first time, below, first time in, in 70 years, or sorry, 60 years, that, that fewer than 70% fewer than of Americans were identifying as Christians. Now, what was also interesting in this is as they pushed in, they found another category, a category of people that had just been nominal, honestly, in the, in the past, in the, in the data. And it was, they found this group to be the largest growing religious group in America. What was that group? It was the nuns. Not these nuns. The nuns. What is a nun? So when you hear, if you've, you may have heard some about this. This has been kind of a big deal since... The, this survey first came out in 2007, but by nuns, people when asked, what religious tradition do you identify with? They said, none, nothing in particular. Now this combines together those who would say, I'm an atheist or I'm an, I'm an agnostic, but it also includes people who would say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I believe in God, but I don't really consider myself as anything in particular. And what's interesting is Pew found this was the largest growing part, largest growing segment of religious identification in America. Now, this came out, and what's interesting is uh, the Pew did this again in 2014, and again, they're, they're going to keep doing this. They, they have a plan to continue studying and continue gathering this information, and what you see is, is if you track these together, you can see that, again, in the 40s, U.S. religious identification up over 90%, and if you look at the nuns, the people who would say, I don't really identify as anything, was low. It was like 2% all the way until about 1980, where it hits around uh, just under 10%. And it stays there through the 90s. And then the Pew study comes out. And here we're now close to 20%. 2014... Now we're almost at 25. I just read an article in October, and based on polling data, they now say that number is over 25% of Americans who say, I'm not really anything in particular, and 65% of people who now say they're Christians. So I'm not a math whiz. You don't have to be a math whiz to look at that and say something's changing, right? America is changing. And it's abundantly clear that Fewer and fewer people are identifying 
as Christians, and more and more people are saying that they're nothing in particular. They don't have any religious identification. And it's not just people uh, who are outside the church. It used to be that people who grew up in the church, as they got older, they stayed connected to the church. But there was another study that was done last year. The Barna Group studied a group of 18 to 35-year-olds who grew up in the church. And they wanted to find out, what are they doing now? You know, now that they're adults, have they continued in their faith? Because historically, nearly 80% of people who grew up in the church eventually found their way back. And people have been wondering this about millennials for a while because millennials were one of the first generations to kind of disappear. Um, They began to wonder, is this group going to come back? And what they found was they weren't. Two-thirds of the people in Barna's study who grew up in the church left the church. Only about a third were still participating. And that's the reason this is a generational topic. And it's the reason I'm bringing it up today because this is a terrible slide. This is the best that I could find. This is from Pew. And it breaks down by generation these questions that they were asking. The top in the red is the identification question. How do you identify? What religious affiliation would you consider yourself? 84% of the silent generation, which we don't have at this church, but Uh, they're still around. The builders, 84% still say they're Christian, but that steadily declines through the boomer generation, through generation X. Look at that, less than 50% of the millennial generation would say, I'm a Christian. And that number, they haven't really gotten good data from generation Z yet because they're just starting to come of age, but they're saying that trend is continuing to dwindle. The bottom is, is one of the things that they asked about religious participation. How often do you go to church Uh, Silent generation, at least uh, once or twice a month. Monthly participation, 61%. Millennials, 35. Only 35% of people in the millennial generation would say they participate in any kind of worship service. And again, this isn't just non-church people. These are people who grew up in the church and are walking away. This, I would say, is a problem. This is an issue This is something that we, as a church community, have to look at and say, what's happening here? What's going on? But unfortunately, when this is not even a new problem, by the way. I mean, think about this. I mean, this problem has been around longer than New Denver Church has been a church. The Pew study came out in 2007. This is not a new trend. This has been going on for 13 years now. And the problem that I have is the way that this problem often gets portrayed by leaders within the church is the way that a lot of the other trends that have changed and the things that have shifted and changed within our culture and our society uh, since the millennial generation has started coming of age, we're treating it the same way. We, We treat it as if it's somehow millennials' fault or Generation Z's fault. They're ruining the church. They're leaving the church. It's it's like we blame a generation for their decision to walk away from faith. Now, it's, it's a problem, but it's not their problem. And it's the same thing as all the other things that have gotten put onto millennials or onto Generation Z. Uh, in week one, I, 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 I told you guys that, you know, Generation Z and, and millennials, they've been blamed for, for killing everything from paper napkins to golf to Applebee's restaurants. The Applebee's has gone through a total decline. And, and to be fair, Applebee's recognized this. They recognized that fewer and fewer younger diners wanted to go eat at Applebee's. They were losing that share of the marketplace. So in 2017, they shifted. They started making some changes. They changed their decor. 
They, they changed their marketing. They tried to position themselves as a, as a hip neighborhood bar and grill. They, they changed their menu. They put some items on there they thought younger people would like tequila, lime, shrimp. You know, I don't know why they thought millennials would be down for that. But you know what? It didn't work. It didn't work. Nothing changed. Applebee's continued to decline. In 2017, they closed over hundreds of stores because they're still not reaching younger customers. And here's what's sad about that. That's the, reason I, the reason I'm talking about Applebee's so much is I think the last 10 years, the church has been doing the exact same thing. We look at these trends. We look at the fact that millennials started leaving the church 15 years ago and Generation Z is checking out now. And churches are just trying to change their image. Pastors wearing skinny jeans and designer sneakers. Using gimmicks and giveaways, trying to get people in the door. Changing programs and services in every way imaginable. More modern, more ancient, ancient modern fusion. I mean, more social media, less social media, more video, less video. We just keep rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And the ship just continues to sink. Because guess what? Hadn't worked any better for the church than it's worked for Applebee's. A generation of people are exiting the doors. So on a snowy day, I'm just a bundle of good news, aren't I? <laughs> Should we just call it a day? Like, like head home, enjoy the warm weather, turn out the lights, just shut this thing down? Actually, I think there's some good news here. Uh, first off, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it, this is a snow day, and I would love to see, just quick show of hands, where are millennials and Generation Z? Who here was born after 1981? Look at that. Okay. On a day that I probably wanted to stay in bed, you guys are here. You're here in church. And that's amazing to me. But we don't take that, I don't take that for granted. Because here's the thing. Every person in a church who's here today, it's not like it used to be where you're just expected to show up and come to church every week because it's cultural. Everybody who's here is making a decision every week, and they're always moving. Moving towards the idea of participating more in a church and growing in their relationship with God or moving away. Sometimes people stop in right before it's their last step out the door. And I think it's really good news that you're here, but I don't think that we can just take that for granted and just continue on and assume that you're going to stay. And one of the things that was really helpful for me reading the Barner research, you know, they did this research study, 18 to 35 year olds who grew up in the church. They really focused in, they asked the question, they, they looked at the two thirds that, that had left the church. And then of the third that was left, there was about 10%. They said there was still about 20% or so that just kept showing up every week. They were, they, as they asked about their behaviors, what they began to find was they weren't really taking their faith seriously, but there was about 10% of this 18 to 35-year-old group that they called resilient disciples. And, and this group of people really took their faith seriously. And as they asked them questions, they began to get a picture of what their faith looked like and what were the contributing factors that had helped them stay engaged in the faith at a time when the rest of their peers were exiting the church. And they wrote this book, David Kinnaman, the director of the Barna uh, group wrote this book, Faith for Exiles. Uh, it just came out last year. It, it's, if you're uh, a parent or if you're a grandparent and you want to understand more about this, these emerging generations and how they're making decisions about faith, it's a great one. 
But today I'm going to talk you through, as I read through the book and as I read through their conclusions and what they observed, um, what, I, what I found was I was going back to this core verse of Scripture that I think defines for us the way we should think about this process of passing faith from generation to generation. And I'm going to share as we go through that verse of Scripture some of the, uh, the observations and some of the things that the Barna group uh, pulled out of their research. Um, because I think it's just as true, this verse of Scripture gives us just as much wisdom and insight today, and it connects to the research on what we're learning about this emerging generation. So the verse that we're going to read comes out of the Old Testament. It comes from when Moses was giving the law to the people of Israel before they entered into the Promised Land and reminding them about who they were as a people. They'd been given the law by God, and they, they'd been given these edicts, these, these commands about how they were to live their life and, and what they were supposed to do. But this is a verse that Jesus referred back to on multiple occasions. Um, all, uh, of the four accounts of Jesus' life, three of the four have stories where someone walked up to Jesus and asked some form of the question, hey Jesus, what's the most important thing I need to do? Of all the commands and all the laws, could you, could you sum it up for me? It's probably a younger person. Like, sum it up. Could you just give me the short version? Could you give it to me in like 240 characters or less? That would be great. And in every occasion, Jesus gave the same form of answer. He pointed back to this verse from Deuteronomy. And the verse begins like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. For Jesus, this was the most important thing that anyone could do. This was the foundation point for him. It was the thing, knowing God was the thing that gave a person identity. It gave a person a sense of who they were, that they were known and loved and created by the God of the universe. And their response to that act of love by God was to return that love to God. It gave purpose, it gave meaning, it gave identity to a person. And it's interesting, reading in Barna's research, what they found was that young people today are struggling to find something that's real. In a culture where there's so many things that are illusory and they're told that these things matter and as they reach for them, they grab them and they, they find that they're just not real. They identified a core problem and the problem emerging is that the emerging generations today are experiencing an identity crisis. They're not sure who they are or what's real. Culture tells them to look within themselves to find who they are. But that's a, that's, a, that's a failing process. That's a narcissistic endeavor that will never fully, truly tell us who we are. But in the study that Barna did, what they found was this small group, this 10%, the resilient disciples, they were defined by a loving relationship with God. And they had found churches and communities where they had seen other people modeling this identity rooted in Jesus in loving God with their whole heart. This was the beginning, that they had a clear sense of who they were, and they found that in communities of faith where other people were doing the same. In a society where people are struggling with an identity, we have an opportunity to model what it looks like to have a firm foundation in being known and loved and accepted by God through our faith in Jesus. Loving God in return with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of ourselves, everything that we are, putting God at the center of our life. And to pass our faith on to rising generations, we have to help them find their identity in Jesus in the same way. But that's not enough. Faith can't just be personal. 
It can't be just about a personal relationship with Jesus that's not public, that doesn't have any manifestation into real life. That was the next thing uh, that Jesus addressed because Jesus added on to what he found in Deuteronomy. He reached to the book of Leviticus and when asked, what's the most important commandment? He said, it's this one. It's to love the Lord your God with all of who you are, but the second is like it. He said, you're to love your neighbor Love your neighbor as yourself. So here Jesus links these two things together. He links love for God with love for people. And in every generation, this is the call that goes out to love God, to root your identity in in that love, and then to live out of that love by loving other people. But there's a problem. Younger people have a problem today. Culture pushes us to be self-absorbed today. Again, to look within ourselves, to think about what we want. Find your bliss. Be the best version of yourself. And it points us to a place where we just feel entitled and self-centered. And that's a problem for younger generations today that are emerging. And the response of the church has got to be to model and to encourage younger people to pursue selflessness. They're joining Jesus' mission to love and to serve other people. But despite this opportunity, this is what's, what's perplexing. Despite this opportunity that's there to model selfless service, to show that faith has an impact, it has an external expression in love for others, too often when surveyed, when asked, young people are asked, what is your perception of the church? And they say things like critical. Christians are judgmental. They're narrow-minded. They're hypocritical. Rather than being known for self-giving love for others, too often churches and Christians are known for what we're against or what political party we're for or against. These perceptions seem to at least in part be part of what's pushing these emerging generations away from the church. But in their research, Barna found that these resilient young people, those who've held on to their faith in in a in a culture where all of their peers are walking away, they had found communities where they were challenged to live out their faith through selfless service, through learning to love and care for other people. They said that they valued their church's ability to help them have wisdom to live with other, uh, with other people that are different than them and even learn to love them, that they were learning from their communities how to better understand and engage with the needs of the poor and the marginalized in their community, And they found inspiration in their communities of faith to be generous. Wisdom, love for people who are different, understanding and serving the poor, and generosity. These are just a few of the things that these resilient disciples said that they were finding that was keeping them engaged in the church. So where is it that young people learn these things? How do they learn it? Are they going to learn it in a service? Are they going to learn it from a class? No, like like most important things in life, it's way more caught been taught. And it's right there, back in the book of Deuteronomy. The verse continues. These commandments, Moses said to the the people, he said, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. These things have to be seen and embodied. If emerging generations are going to learn what it means to root identity in a love for God, and for that, that love to find expression in love and service and care for other people, even people who are different than them, they're going to have to see it lived out in the generations that go before them. They're going to have to see it lived out within a community. 
And there's a couple things I want to point, about, point out about this verse that I think are important. Um, we always share this verse when we do a baby dedication because in New Denver, we talk about parents are the, the primary spiritual developers of your kids. You can't, you can't come drop your kids off for an hour and expect that they're going to be spiritually formed because, again, faith is caught. It's not taught. It has to be learned at home. But, but I think when Moses was speaking this verse to the community of Israel, I don't think he just had parents in mind when he was talking about this. I think he's speaking to the whole community, and what he's saying is the children in your community need to receive these things. They need to learn these things from you, not just from parents, but they need to learn it from the broader community that they're a part of. But in our individualistic culture, we, we read this verse and we, we read, okay, so children implies parents. So you, parents, you're responsible for this. And if I'm single or if I'm married and I don't have kids or if I'm an empty nester, that's done for me. I don't have to have any part of that. But if you read through the scriptures, God's plan for his people was always to, that they were to be an intergenerational community. That was true in the Old Testament with Israel. It was true for Jesus and his first followers, it was, it was true for the first church, and it's still true for us today. That's what the church is supposed to be, an intergenerational community where we are helping one another and we're helping emerging generations to learn what it means to live out a vibrant faith. Last week, Norton talked about this idea that, that, that we need to find ways to step across these barriers and begin to create connections with one another, to begin listening and learning to one another. But that's not just a helpful way to learn and grow as adults. I think this is key to helping bring younger generations along, to help them have models outside of their family, what it looks like to live faith. In a culture where younger generations are experiencing isolation and trust between generations, it's just now the norm. The response of the church needs to be to cultivate this kind of intergenerational relationships that also include emerging generations. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, let me show you what it's looked like in my life for the last four or five years. So I recognized a few years ago that this was something that I wanted, that I wanted other people in my, my life, my family's life, and in my kids' life to be able to be models for what uh, my wife and I were trying to teach them on our own. So four years ago, this is 2016, this is a D group that I started with a group of guys here at New Denver. A couple of them were single, a couple were married, different seasons of life. We met on Sundays, we talked about the sermon, we talked about our faith, um, and we just met regularly. It was a D group. It's what we do here. We, we encourage people, we, we help you get connected in, into D groups. But along the way, I realized that I wanted my sons to get to know these men that I was spending time with and that I was learning from because I wanted them to have other models of men that were following Jesus in their life. So we just hung out together. This is me and Cody and Adam at a, at a Rapids game. We went to lots of, we were all soccer fans, so we went to soccer games together. And we didn't just talk about soccer. We talked about life and relationships. Cody was married, Adam was single and dating. And guess what? My son Ethan sat in on all of those conversations. About a year later, that group ended and we started a new group. We kept some of those guys and we brought in some new couples and now we're having dinner together every Sunday night. And, and my kids are getting to see other married people. And what does Christian marriage look like outside of our parents? One of the couples had a baby during that time. My, my kids got to be on the front row to see what it's like when your life changes in that way. 
And then Adam got engaged and he and Hannah got married. And I love this picture. Cody took this picture. Take a look right there. Who's photobombing? <laughs> There's Ethan photobombing, one of my sons photobombing, because he was there. He was part of the wedding. We got to celebrate that together. We got to celebrate those life events. If you're here today and you're, you're a family of kids, you need to find ways to invite other people into your life. It doesn't have to be through D groups. It doesn't even have to be within the church. There are so many young, older Gen Zers, younger millennials who you work alongside, who maybe you live in the same apartment complex with. They're never going to come here. They're never going to come to church, but they might come to your dinner table. They might come to a Nuggets game with you. Probably wouldn't come to a Rapids game. I don't know, they might. Uh, but they would come to spend time with you. And I think that's where we need to start thinking about ways of reaching out and bringing people in. And regardless of what season of life you're in, you have an opportunity, even if you don't have kids, you have an opportunity to affect the next generation. You have an opportunity to be a part of bringing kids along, bringing young adults along in the process of maturing in their faith simply by being involved in their lives. Wherever you are in your life, you have an opportunity to be a part of that. Okay, so I want to go back to this verse. So because uh, this verse, what this verse says, uh, it tells us how does this happen? Okay, so it's happening between generations, but practically, how is it happening? What's happening in these conversations and in these dinner table relationships, but it's also happening as we talk about real things about life and how our life impacts or how our faith impacts our actual life. Um, if you look at what it says here in the verse, it's saying, where does it say that you're to go to learn about these commands? Are we supposed to go to church? Are we supposed to go to the synagogue? No, it says impress them as you sit at home, when you walk along the road or driving in your car for, for us, as you lie down, you sit up. When you go to these things, as you're talking about things of life and you're talking about how faith integrates them, you're modeling what it looks like to integrate your faith in your life. And this in the Barna research was so key for young adults. This is one of the places that I think younger generations are pushing the church in really, really helpful ways. Because it's not enough anymore for younger generations to come and sit in a room and listen to an old guy talk and sing some songs and go home. There's no, there's no benefit in it. Like, why would you do that? There's just no, it has to mean something in life. It has to matter in life. They want to see something that's real. They want to see something that actually has implications for their life. They're asking questions in a complicated work world. They want to know what faith has to say about their vocation. So this has to go beyond this room. We have to be talking about our faith in real and practical ways. And in the, the resilient disciples that Barna found, that was a key part of their faith. They were learning from older people how to, how to have healthy relationships, how to navigate difficult work situations, uh, how to find a vocation and a calling, how to make decisions about life based on their faith. It has to be grounded in real life. So just to recap, here's the things that I think this verse teaches us and that Barna's research uh, tells us. That first of all, the emerging generations uh, need to be grounded in their identity and who God sees them to be. And that means we have to ground our identity in loving God with our whole lives. And that finds its expression in serving other people as we resist selfishness and as we show our love for other people through service. We break through the mistrust 
to form intergenerational relationships. And this is not just between adults. This includes emerging generations. How can we bring our kids, our adolescents, and our young adults into these conversations about faith and life? And how can we ground and motivate them with faith that includes their whole life and their whole vocation? So if we focus on all of these things, if we do these things as a church, are we going to grow? Are we going to reach the next generation? Are we going to start exploding as a church? I have no idea. I, I don't know what the future of the American church um, is going to be. It's changing for sure, 100%. But here's the thing. I'm actually really excited about it. I, I think the younger generations are kind of creating a, a cleansing there's a lot of really unhealthy stuff that's been in the American church for a long time. And I think that, that the way it's been is not good enough anymore for younger generations. They're demanding these ancient truths that life be grounded on something real, like a relationship with God. And I think they're pushing church leaders like me and like Norton and others to think about these things. And so I don't know where these challenges and where these changes are going to take us, but I trust that God is in it. And I believe that, that he will fulfill his promise to build and to grow his church, the people of God who are walking and trusting with him. It might get worse before it gets better, but in the meantime, the best thing that we can do as a community is to keep doing these things, to keep coming back to the rooting our identity in Christ, to keep living our faith, to keep inviting in people from different generations, and to keep trying to figure out what does it look like to live our life in all of life. And as we do that, I believe that God will meet us in that process. Let's pray as we close. Um, as we close, just to ask God to be a part of that and to help us um, have wisdom to know how to do that. God, we, um, we declare again and, and, and affirm from your scripture that you are a God of all generations, that you see us, um, you know us, you call us by name. And I'm so grateful um, just for the way you work through generations, that every generation seems to need to find you and encounter you in their own ways, and that will push and challenge often older generations. Thanks for the, for the millennials and the, and the Generation Z, members of Generation Z, all the younger people that are in our church, and the way that they push us to keep thinking about this. How do we, how do we really live out our faith in authentic ways? How do we love and serve this city? And I pray, God, that you would keep us humble and dependent on you, um, and then in everything that we do, God, that we would, uh, we would seek you and your, uh, the guidance of your Spirit. And we pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.